And now, coming to you live from the Gresham Room, high above the Coot Street Motel 6, it's Gary Wolf and Jonathan Strand on the Coot Street Podcast. And welcome to the second podcast of 2023. Am I correct with that? I think you're correct second. with that. Hello. Okay, good. Well, How's okay, life in well, Chicago? It's, it's, well, anyway. It's after dark, Life I know. in Chicago is fine. It's, it, it, it was, it was, we were talking, obviously, before we started recording. And w- without being, you know, insensitive, Talking on a podcast with somebody who is more or less on the same wave, it's a lot more fun than talking to in-laws on a vacation, which we had to. <laughs> a week, a week, I just got back from a weekend trip, which was supposed to have been a Christmas Eve trip, but Christmas Eve turned out to be a climatic disaster in the United States. Yes. So yes. I'm back here. I'm feeling engaged again. Uh, I've been reading a lot of fiction, as you know, because I just turned in a column of things that we'll be talking about later in the year, I suppose. Yes, yes. And you've been thinking about defining space opera. Well, let me, let me explain why now, which I didn't okay. when I was talking to you a moment ago. Okay. So, uh, some years ago, I co-edited two books, uh, The New Space Opera and The New Space Opera 2 with Gardner Dozois. They came out in like uh-huh. 2007 and 2009, something like that, right? And I also helped edit a new space opera issue of Locus. Mm-hmm. Fast forward to now, and about a week and a half, two weeks ago, I signed a contract to edit a reprint anthology of recent space opera. And by recent, I mean 2010 to 2020 kind of period, right? So uh, excellent new, you know, short, short fiction of the ne- last right. De- decade, right? And there's been plenty of it, so that's wonderful. But then... As always, because I'm nothing but the most sophomoric and, you know, sort of juvenile of introducers to anthologies, because you're required to write them, and I write terrible introductions, uh, you need to define this thing, right? Because, I mean, how, how do you sit there? And I know any sensible person listening about, to, you know, to anything about science fiction will groan, because there's nothing more groansome than def- defining things in science fiction, because nobody right. ever agrees. Having said that, I have been... This week and in preceding uh, last year, sort of trying to move around this question of well, okay, what is space opera, and if space opera has changed over time, what elements are the elements that change? You know, what uh-huh. was it that made the new space opera new? And ten years later, is there a new, new, new space opera, or is it still, you know, is it slightly older new space opera, or is it getting back to the old space opera? You know, and. You know, it, it hits with questions when I mean, you were mentioning just before we started the excellent Charlie Gra- Jane Anders trilogy that comes to its conclusion shortly, which is a young adult uh, space mm-hmm. opera. And there are other things which are called space opera. And are they? And so I spontaneously suggest- suggested to you, and I did it online as well, Gary, that my feeling was that the first thing that space opera was, and it's several things. Hang on. Sorry, everyone else. Yes. The first thing space opera is it's a setting. It's populated space with space ships. Second thing it is, is it's almost always a particular kind of story. It's adventure fiction. Space, space opera is a subset of space adventure. Then you get into the question of, well, what makes it space opera over space adventure? And mm-hmm. that's where you get into this question of stakes. From the perspective of the people involved or the characters involved, it's existential. In a YA space opera, it could be your family falling apart because that's existential. <laughs> in uh, adult space opera, it will be the universe, the timeline, the planet, the whatever else it is, everything's you know having to be dealt with. And then there's a matter of tone or whatever else that we were talking about, which is 
the drama melodrama spectrum. You know what I mean? Yeah. Space opera happens closer to melodrama than to drama. It doesn't I, tend. I mean, one of the things about new space opera was mm -hmm. that it's, it moves the slider sort of slightly back towards drama away from melodrama. But anyway, what were you going to say? I was going to say, well, there was another anthology um, about, I don't know, maybe about the same time that you and Gardner were working on yours, and that was uh, David Hartwell, and I think Kath with Catherine Kramer, yes, the Catherine Space Kramer, Opera yeah. Renaissance, which yes. was a huge anthology that, from my perspective, um, included a lot of good space opera stories in it and also attempted to... Um, I wouldn't quite use the word abduct, but it, it attempted to include stories by um, people like Paul McCauley, who I regard as a, there you go, it's exactly the same arc that I have. Ursula Le Guin becomes a space opera writer in this. In other words, this is an attempt at, a, at an inclusive rather than a uh, exclusive definition of space opera. But that, the line of reasoning, I have not reread uh, Hartwell's introduction. His introductions were always provocative, always thoughtful, and always or frequently made me angry because uh, <laughs> because because they were trying. I think an anthology like that tries to mold the field, and without getting, sure. and, but without getting into a, a, too much of a side discussion here, there are anthologies that reflect the field as it stands. There are anthologies that want to shape the field. You seem to be describing an anthology that wants to reflect what has become of space opera in the third decade of the 21st century. That's true. That's, that's exactly what this particular book will be. It is an attempt to capture that moment and to look at the next step after what we just saw. Whereas you're also right, although there's a very definite slant, all of the, the, the big anthologies that uh, David Hartwell edited either mm. by himself or with Catherine Kramer, you know, the big horror ones, the big hard SF ones, whatever. Else. Yeah. The space opera one, it takes its real, it's its own angle and is a quite an interesting book. It's actually 17 years old now, nearly. Yeah. And, you know, it, it tells you what space opera was. I mean, the kind of story titles that Hartwell's book features, Star Stealers, Prince of Space. Yeah. Zern left unguarded the Jengich Palace in flames, John Westerly dead, you know. <laughs> Which is a Robert Sheckley story, right? Uh, so it, it, these these are like really kind of that they are by their nature melodramatic, and then they begin to like change over time and get a lot more focused and a lot more a little bit more towards tech and hard hard SF. Even yeah. though it's interesting that sort of when you get to the nineteen nineties, he's throwing in Moorcock stories and whatever, which is kind of an interesting thing to do. Well, so, yeah. Win is in there, but I, I, think, I, I, I think one of the things that uh, yeah, that if, if you go back further to earlier yeah. anthologies. Hmm? Yes, she is with the showbiz story. The showbiz story. Uh, if I recall correctly, earlier anthologies going back to the 70s or 80s by Brian Aldous called space opera were kind of celebrations of cheap pulp adventure fiction. Um, Very much so. I mean, uh, I took the title of a book from the, the one of the sections of uh, space opera, uh, my book, Godlike Machines. Yeah, okay. It comes from there. But it, he was the one who talked about, you know, space must flow past the ports like wine, you know, handsome men must save the universe and all this kind of thing. There has to be, you know, in, in that version of Space Opera, there was one character who was going to save everything and they would pluckily go, well, bravely go off and do so in the most melodramatic way possible. Honestly, let's face it, Space Opera is kind of like the hard SF version of Bollywood. Maybe it is, but it's not that easy to kill either because 
one of the things that I remember thinking about when I was looking at the history of science fiction, starting in the 60s and on, on through now, basically, was that space opera was, was, was demolished by parodies of it. It was demolished by people like Harry Harrison with Star Smashers of the Galaxy Rangers. And it was deliberately undermined by writers like M. John Harrison with the Centauri device. All of these are books directly in response to space opera. Uh, one of them is just basically making a very funny parody, but with some. Her, Harrison always had a point. He was always satirizing actual flaws in the fiction. M. John Harrison really wanted to wipe out the space opera tradition by showing what the flaws were with it. And, and in a sense, the Atari. But see, Mike Harrison killing space opera is like Lucius Shepard killing dragon stories, right? Well, that's true. Because what, what tool did they use to kill it? They used the very thing they said they hated, you know, creating memorable examples thereof. Whether mm. you look at in, in Mike Harrison's case with the Centauri advice, and then the is it the Kefahuchi trilogy, you know, Light and its follow-ons, yeah. or whether it be in the case of you know Lucius and Dragons, the man who painted the dragon Graul and those stories, right? Those stories. So you know. Uh, you always got to take it, take it that that cautiously. What's interesting, though, and what you know, occurs to me as I hear you to say that, because you're right, Gary. People write in response to space opera because space yes. opera remains the core of the field to this moment. Oh, so this, okay, that's an interesting and possibly contentious statement. Um, because the other thing that's happened with space opera, other than people trying to redefine it and redemol and demolish it in various ways, or to show its flaws, one of the I forgot, some famous satirist once said that the danger of satirizing something too effectively is that it just keeps it alive. In other words, all you're doing is you're getting a, a, new, a new group of literary readers who, who kind of enjoy that space opera aspect. Oh, um, Gary, I think the satires and I think the uh, commentaries, whatever else, they're like remoras on the beast, you know? They're, okay. they're, they're not actually uh, existential attacks on it at all. Uh, we're never able to be and never will be. I think if you look around, if by any objective standard, science fiction exists on with space opera as its core form. It's its core form in uh, dramatic media, in te you know, television, in film. It's its core form still. I mean, what, what are the last two books to win Hugo's? Arcady Martin's space mm -hmm. operas. Mm -hmm. You know? Uh, I mean, yes, that the... the Material it's interested in has changed, and that's what interests me. But the fact okay, that I, it's, the, um, yeah, my objection is you say the core form. I would say it's a core form. I don't think that you can subsume all the dystopian fictions, all the time travel fictions, all of the uh, anthrop anthropocene fictions. They can't all be subsumed into space opera. It is one of the pillars of science fiction, but it's not the only pillar. It's the er form, guess Gary, of science fiction. Well, it's the er form of commercial science fiction. I would agree. You should see how uncomfortable he looks when I say this, listeners. Not happy with the idea that space opera is the er form of science fiction, You're but using, it kind of is. It kind of is, but you know, it's, if if you go back and look at the pulp era, which gave rise to space opera, there are a lot of transformed animal stories. There are time sure. sidewise in time stories this sort of thing you're right i think the keystone of both um uh 
uh, amazing stories at the beginning and then later wonder stories and then later, later thrilling wonder stories. There's clearly a pulp tradition. And there were people who wrote very good space opera. I personally, when I was a kid, uh, really loved Edmund Hamilton's space operas. Um, and I could barely read uh, Edward E. Smith's space operas because they were just really bad prose. But you're and, right. Uh, there, there, is a, there, there was a term that uh, Donald A. Walheim coined. He may not have coined it, but he said he coined it. In a book he wrote about science fiction called The Universe Makers, which was the consensus cosmogony of science fiction. The consensus mm-hmm. was, well, we'll build space stations and then we'll settle the moon and then we'll use the moon to uh, settle the outer planets and then we'll use the outer planets and we'll move out into the galaxy and pretty soon you've got a galactic empire. Um, and that kind of mythology that he's describing, he calls it a cosmogony, but it's not. Um, that kind of myth is essentially defined by space opera. I'll agree with that. So there's mm-hmm. a core myth. I'm not sure I would agree it's the core myth. Okay. I mean, I think it, I really do think it's like, I think for most people, when they think about science fiction, this is one of the core places it starts. It does. It, it, it is. And um, never stops. Um, no, it never stops. It, it, it never goes away. Every generation has its new space opera writers. And I, I, I always wonder how people get into space opera. In other words, if somebody reads a novel, a very popular novel, let's say like Old Man's War, uh, does that lead them back to earlier iterations of space opera? Or does it simply lead them to later Scalzi novels and novels in, in that tradition? Were I to guess, and it's only a guess, I would suggest that it does not lead them back to earlier iterations of space opera, to the works of Edmund Hamilton or Doc Smith or uh, a Van Vogt or even Robert Heinlein, even yeah. though Robert Heinlein's the most direct lineal uh, predecessor in some ways from Scalzi. I think what it does, it leads them to go to a bookstore to try to find something similar because they like that. And right. they, if, if you went to a bookstore, I mean, I forget the exact timing off the top of my head when Old Man's War came out, but it's something like 2003, 2005, right? Something like that, I think. By the time you're going to, to most mainstream bookstores at that time, most of the kind of science fiction that we're ta- that, we're, that I've just name checked is beginning to disappear from the shelves. So you're looking at around at other stuff that's around contemporarily, whether it be Walter John Williams' Praxis, right. whether it be Lost Master Bujold's Mars Rikosigan, whether it be uh, the the Bane military space operas and so on, whether it be Chizé Cherry, a whole bunch of other people you could think of who are around in the mid two thousands were uh, being read widely. So I don't think necessarily leads them back at all. There will always be a, the kind of reader who's attracted to finding older work, and that always takes more research and effort. It was easier for me in 1982 to be looking back and finding Van Vogt and Doc Smith and so on because they were still much closer to being in print and readily available yeah. everywhere. Now the extent to which those, at least in my part of the world, those writers' works continue to exist. They either exist through, you know, digital editions you won't stumble across, or they sit in, you know, entombed a little bit or, or preserved in uh, classics lines, your know, masterworks of science fiction and stuff, where you're not seeing we're carrying an A.E. Van Vogt book because everybody wants to read it. We have volume 38 of the masterworks, and people will look at it for that reason. I think also that you're right. There's a kind of core to science fiction, kind of backlist core, 
which probably has disappeared simply because there's so much contemporary fiction you can look at. This tradition you're talking about, I would include writers from the 50s and 60s, like, I don't know, Gordon R. Dixon, Alan E. Norris, uh, sure. people who wrote kind of what I thought of at the time as space, op- space opera procedurals. They knew exactly what to do. They knew exactly all the kinds of uh, buttons to push. They knew the issues you were talking about, about scale. The question yeah. is, the question also, though, they were also literarily very ambitious. Um, Gordon, I met Gordon, Gordy Dixon a couple of times, and he was a very nice guy. His fiction struck me as being always competent. But he told me once that he was really, he was really trying to write in his Dorsai sequence a kind of version, a science fiction version of Balzac's The Human Comedy. And I thought, no, you're not. Uh, you're just you're just saying that because I'm a professor and you're trying to. I don't know whether he meant it or not. But they had kinds of ambitions that they probably couldn't realize in the commercial environment that they were writing in. Now, mm-hmm. move up to the last couple of years. You talk about Arcady Martin's space operas. Mm-hmm. Those are sophisticated, psycholo- psychologically and characterologically sophisticated novels. They are not operas in the sense that we've been talking about. They're not, uh, the, the, the characters in them are not stereotypes. They're not characters out of Verdi or, or, or Gilbert and Sullivan. They're real characters. So the question now I'm asking is, like, can you write a serious novel with serious characters facing serious moral dilemmas which still meets all your definitions and conditions for space opera. He's hesitating. Look, look, I want to say yes. I'm reluctant to say no. I I feel like to make a book like that feel serious, to the extent that that's important that it does, Hmm. and that's questionable, but uh, to the extent that you want to make it feel serious, you need to tone the melodrama down. I don't think we in, inherently take melodrama seriously. Now, I guess your question then is, at what point do you pass through the tissue-thin permeable membrane of space adventure or whatever it is to to space opera? Yeah, you know, exactly. What, what, when does it become? And I think that that's a very personal decision in the end, probably. I don't have a clear feeling. I kind of, I mean, I don't know that I necessarily myself would initially have picked um, a memory called Empire as a space opera, though I accept that it can be seen that way. Um, so, I mean, I but, but then I felt, but I felt the same way about Down Below Station. Well, I was you going know, to say, I, you I accept that Down Below Station. I mean, there are other books in the in that sequence in Cherry Sequence mm-hmm. that are closer to um, feeling as though in the Merchant or Alliance universe they feel closer to space opera than than Down Below. But could it be? Yeah, it could be seen that way. But it's well, kind I mean, of getting uh, also when you have an extended series like that, or or the Miles Verkozigan novels. There are some novels and stories within the sequence that are essentially placeholders. That are novels that take place within the universe, but don't attempt to necessarily move the space opera quote unquote narrative forward. Um, I guess the <clears throat> question I have is. Uh, when you talk about a character, well, you, you mentioned the memory called Empire. You take a title like a desolation called Peace, and that strikes me as being just a Pretty phrase. operatic. Well, it's it's operatic and anti-operatic at the same time. Mm-hmm. Um, in, in other words, you have uh, you have another aspect of space opera, which I think of as in, in traditional classic space opera. Mm-hmm. That's at least being questioned. And you haven't mentioned this term yet, but the classic space operas. Uh, at least were fun. They were sometimes utter nonsense. 
They were operatic in the, they, they, the plots made sense in the same way that the plots of operas made sense. Sure. Uh, which sure. is not much, but they were really, the, the thing is, if, 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 you, if you go to see, I don't know, go to see La Traviata or go, go, go to see um, any Verdi opera or most Gilbert and Sullivan operas, you can't take the plots very seriously at all. But the plots are there to generate conditions for extreme emotion. And that kind of extreme emotion in space opera is not, uh, it's not done through, through, through arias and music. It's done through in, enlarging the scale. There's more True. and more stuff. And one of the things that... The, the director, thing. Yeah, you, you mentioned one of the things which I thought was a classic space opera gesture, which is a gesture that Charlie Jane Anders is using in her YA series, is that you, you, you join the galactic resistance or empire or whatever it is, you, and you, you, you defeat this horrible terrible universe threatening menace only to find out that that's only the beginning that menace was the little menace the next menace is the one you have to face in volume two and then that menace is afraid of still a yet another menace and that kind of thing which just goes on and on and on that's operatic um, yes that strikes me and that strikes me as not what writers like arcady martin are trying to do but is it still nonetheless seeable in that space and i, I feel like for those of you out there have not seen these Charlie Jane Anders books. We are talking about a series, the Unstoppable Trilogy, yeah. that starts with the absolutely calm and restrained title, Victories Greater Than Death, oh, and then proceeds go. with Dreams Bigger Than Heartbreak. And it's coming, those, coming as a TV series, unsurprisingly. Those could be arias from Madame Butterfly, for heaven's sake. Uh, they're, 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 they have titles that sound like operatic arias. And I, I have we've talked to Charlie Jane about this. Uh, she did not uh, make a study of early space opera, but I think she, she read Van Vogt, she read some of it, but she, she didn't try to go back and read all of Hamilton. But she inherited the gene. She knew what it was oh, yeah. from having read a lot of science fiction. Which well, goes and from back, seeing it, and, and from having seen, oh, you've it. I mean, seen it. You've seen it, you've seen it in Star anyone Wars. Writing, right? Anyone writing in 2023 is as much responding to Guardians of the Galaxy and Star Trek and Star Wars as they are to whatever else. There was a generation of writers and readers even older than I was uh, when, Star, when Star Wars came out. And the first, the first hyperspace special effect where the stars just blur and stream past the, the cockpit was for them the first realization they'd seen of what they'd read about in pulp magazines for, for 50 years by then. So to some mm. extent, yeah, there's, there, there's no doubt that it was... Uh, yes, it, it's the hand wave that says we go very fast. Yeah, it says it says we go very fast, and it's it's an animated version of what people used to see in Frank R. Paul covers and Lee Mori covers and that sort of thing. So absolutely, we've been trained in the basics of space opera by movies. Um, the difference is that, but there's very little actual science fiction in most of the Star Wars movies. Well, there's very little actual science fiction in a lot of space opera. Well, that's true too. That's a good point. I mean, space opera is not particularly focused on how the um bioengineering you know deck kind of works or what what the nature of the system that's powering their ships to trap to do that what they're doing it, it, it's you know focusing on other things in the story right let me ask you i mean you've, you've cited particularly the unstoppable trilogy but looking back at the last year or two can you think of space operas that have struck you as being outstanding you know um there's certainly a handful that you know come to mind and well, I wonder what are, how, coming, what are the ones coming to your mind, and they will probably okay, stir books, something. Books that come to mind. 
Walter John Williams has brought his Praxis series mm-hmm. to a pause with Imperial Imperium Restored. Adrian Tchaikovsky, who's probably the, the, the master of scale of the moment in terms of science fiction, uh, proceeds with his Eyes of the Void, which is the latest in his Architects of Space series or whatever it's called. Uh-huh. Um, I noticed that um, there's uh, Elliot de Bodard's The Red Scholar's Wake, which is part of her Zia universe, yeah. which may or may not be space opera. Um, yeah. And, all, and Maurice brought, brought us his sweep of stars as well. Right. Okay. That that that, that 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 makes sense, and I would I would agree with those, even though I haven't read all of them. Um, there are to go back a couple of years, though. Just it just occurred to me while you were saying it. What did you make of Catherine Valenti's novel entitled Space Opera? It was a comedy. It was a comedy which made deliberate use of music, certainly. Um, that sort of reflected the idea. I mean, interestingly enough, it was the second science fiction novel to be titled Space Opera. Do you remember who wrote the first one? Jack Vance. Jack Vance, absolutely. And who, who was it, paid to do it? It was paid to do it, and, uh, and and it actually had an opera in it, as I recall. And it, it in that same space, the thing that also goes on the "Gosh, aren't we you know cheerily clever space opera ha ha ha" thing is the uh, Anne McCaffrey anthology. Space oh. opera. Yes, I forgot she about had that an anthology of that title, uh, and in fact featured, I believe, featured a story by Peter Beagle in it. Is, is my recollection really? Uh, which was up for the World Fantasy Award or was going to be that kind? Of, yeah. So yeah. Hmm. Welcome to that. But I mean, if you look at a book like you know Red Scholar's Wake, and you know th- there's something where there are spaceships racing through the void, there are melodramatic relationships. Um, I believe there's some piracy that happens, et cetera, et cetera. So it's kind of superficially, at least, in the right space. Well, I mean, this, this raises another issue, and that's not a long novel by any but it's, I think, if I'm not mistaken, the longest story so far to be said in the Zuyu universe. And it is, um, it's operatic in that it has, it's a romance. It's a romance uh, between essentially a spaceship who identifies as female and a female captive of this. Uh, so the first half of it is romance. The second half is full of space opera gestures. So here's my other question. You can you can insert space opera type scenes into any number of hard science fiction novels. You can, I, I suspect without having any evidence to back this up, that I could go back and look at some novels by Paul McCauley or Gregory Benford and find space opera scenes within much larger structure. So my question is, is space opera completely a form or is it a resource? Is it something that every science fiction writer can use, sometimes in different ways, sometimes as parody, sometimes actually as opera, and sometimes as a way of inserting a, a, a fill-up of old-time adventure into hard conceptual science fiction? Has Greg Egan ever written a space opera scene, for example? Yeah, the closest he could. I mean, or at least, uh, not really, sort of. You know, there's a story of his called Glory that he wrote for the new space opera for mm. Gardner and I, which has to do with the launching of a spacecraft and certainly the stirrings of that, the the intention of scale in a way uh-huh. is operatic, even though it's told at a nanometer level scale, as I recall. But I think the intentions of it are. So does the entirety of a work have to be space opera for it to be space opera? Mm. I want to say yes. I want to say that those 
isolated scenes are actually something else that looks similar, but I don't know that I'm ready to like nail my colors to the mast on that one. Well, the other, the, the other half of the question was, can you have the question you just were addressing? Can you have space opera scenes in a non-space opera novel? The other way of asking that question is, does yeah, a space opera yeah, element turn any novel into a space opera? I guess it depends how hard you want it to be space opera. Uh, probably not. I think, th- I think for me, it probably has to be that the overall narrative is, is the opera, the operatic okay. element, the, the melodrama. I would, I would tend to agree with that. Because I mean, you, you yeah. can have slam-bang space battles in a completely political, uh, I'm, I'm thinking now of, of Paul McCauley's Quiet War series, set entirely within uh, the, the solar system, a lot of there's a whole tradition of science fiction of inter-solar system outer planets versus inner planets kind of thing, which can ha- have a lot of space opera elements in them, but the scale never moves beyond the solar system really, or it doesn't until the very end of the series, and the focus is never necessarily on the operatic version. It's 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 space adventure. So my question now is: Is there a line between space opera and just space adventure? Yes, there is, and I suspect that it comes down to this issue of melodrama. Okay. You know, the point at which the, the, the whole narrative becomes melodrama. I mean, this is the answer, in fact, to your question about if you have operatic space operatic elements in a, in a narrative, does it make mm-hmm. it a space opera? And I would argue, to change the term to terminology to make it maybe feel clearer, does using melodramatic technique, does having a melodramatic scene make a drama into a melodrama? And I would say, no, I don't think it does. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I think that plays. I think you can have op- operatic scenes in something that isn't ultimately an opera. Um, where does it change for the overall na- narrative? Where is that permeable membrane? Yeah. I'm not sure. I think it's personal because one of the things about all of this that you know very well is that, first of all, it's intensely subjective. Mm-hmm. There is no nice, neat clade of term- terms or whatever else in existence that define science fiction. And it becomes harder to nail down because... The term itself, space opera, has changed so much over time and been used for so many different purposes. You know, there are those who will claim certain books, certain narratives to be space opera because it suits them for sales and marketing purposes. Mm. There are those who will sit there and do what we're doing. I mean, we're doing it, I guess, from a, a taxonomic slash academic a- angle. Do we think it looks like this particular beast? And that's what ties into what I'm doing with, with the book that I'm doing. It sounds to me um, like you're, you're, you're raising an important additional, com- a, a, a conceptually huge new idea to this, um, mm-hmm. which is that space opera is partly what the author does and it's partly what the reader does. Mm-hmm. Partly yes. what the reader takes away from a text. I talk to people, uh, let's, let's take Tamsin Muir's series, for example. People who see yep, in that time, space yeah. opera, uh, I mean, it's people who, uh, who like, okay, uh, vampires in space or lesbian vampires in space or all yep, the yep, things yep. that go into the characters. The adventure itself has a lot of space opera elements. And if you want to read those as space operas, you can find space opera elements in them that will satisfy you. Yeah, I mean, these, I guess, they're kind of goth space operas, I guess. Why can't you have a gothic space opera? For having you know, you totally Alien can. as totally a gothic can. space opera. Of course you can. I mean, look what Al Reynolds did with Revelation Space. Well, right? yeah, exactly. Um, I want to say that what struck me when I was reading Nona the Ninth was the heart of the story wasn't about what was happening on a on a space kind of level in the space set, space setting. It was about what was happening 
between the characters and on more of a planet-bound level, but that doesn't necessarily... I'd have to go back and look at it from that kind of perspective. I want to say it's not, but I don't know that I think that even... That I actually but, I, but, but, but I think we're getting at something which I think is very important. I don't think that you, in doing this anthology, want to proclaim these are the rules. This has to be satisfied to be a space... Oh, no, 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 no. What I want to, what I want to do is explain what I'm doing. Okay. You know, this can only be... I mean, you, quite reasonably, I think you can say the new space opera and the new space opera 2 sketch a space for where I think space opera was happening along with my friend and collaborator, Gardner Dezoir. Mm. This book that I'm putting together whatever we ultimately call it, um, will be my view of what space opera is now based on my understanding of what space opera is. And I'm trying to, I mean, I have long found, and I'm, I suspect many people do, that one of the ways you, you discover what you think, one of the ways you work it out is through conversation like this. You're going, does that sound right? Does this sound right? So it's trying to narrow that down, chip it away. And I've been trying for some months to chip that away at, what I personally think space opera is. Now, does that mean that anybody else is going to agree with me? No. There are people who are much better informed about the field than I am who are going to argue and say that I've missed the point. Now, sometimes their reasoning doesn't match mine. I know people who will say, book X, uh, like, book X is space opera. Mm -hmm. Because, honestly, if you were to push it, I can sell it better when I call it space opera. And I kind of go, well, go with God. You can do that. But that's not relevant to what I'm doing. Right. No, I absolutely. need to be able to explain the logic as well. When I include a story in this book that I'm going to do, if I include one of Yoon Ha Lee's space operas or one of wow. Elliot de Bedard's or one of Arcadia Martins or whatever else, or one of Becky Chambers or whoever, right? Why that? Why not something else? What is it that makes it sit in this? And when I put those those stories together, what picture of space opera does it tell in 2023 about the last decade or so? And well, I maintain thing, it yeah, in space I, I think one, one factor that clearly is there, and I, I think you could probably even add River Solomon to this and, and other writers, is that space opera now includes a much broader spectrum of actors than it did before. That is, you do have... Mm -hmm. uh, uh, the, the diverse, we talk about the di diversification of the field in terms of writing and publishing in terms of the characters that appear in stories and this has been a large part of the appeal of, of some of the writers you've mentioned but I have a specific question since you've mentioned Gardner a couple of times now Gardner Desois who you worked with on that anthology who is arguably um, the most Im influential editor in many ways of the late 20th century did he have an idea of what space opera was? Because he was he was buying stories for Asimov's. He was editing his year's best anthologies forever. He worked with you on the new space opera. Uh, admittedly, it's been many years. But did he have a clear vision in mind of what it was during his editing career, do you think? I think that he did. And I think you can see it most closely in a couple of books that he did in the, I guess, early 2000s, the good old stuff and the good new mm -hmm. stuff. Yeah, that's one of them. Space opera was the good old stuff. Yeah. New space opera was the good new stuff. Um, Gardner w is literally where I take the, the way Gardner spoke about core SF, right? Yeah. That was his terminology. That was his thing that he used it repeatedly. And I took it to mean, because we never sat, you know, sat down and broke it down in conversation. I took it to mean those most traditional kinds of narratives you find at the heart of the field, the space adventure, the space opera, those kinds right. of things. And I think that, you know, he would have argued for the Gernsback continuum of space opera, you know, the, that whole Van Vogt on, right. on forward. 
through the new, I mean, obviously the, the new space opera and the changing forms. But I don't recall him actually like sitting down and overtly bothering too much to uh, to define it. He, he left, for example, writing the introduction to that book pr- primarily to me. Uh huh. You know, he wasn't overly interested in doing that if he, he could not. I think. I think writing those introductions for his big years best was traumatic enough every year without having to, you know, write them right. for anywhere else. You know, because those writing introductions is not fun, as you know. No. So you know. But it's 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 interesting to me because uh, you're saying in effect that his definition of a space opera, and I could, I mean, I'm I'm talking to an editor now, so I probably don't know what I'm talking about, but he probably did not want to articulate it. Any more than, let's say, Ellen Datlow wants to articulate horror fiction versus dark fantasy. In other words, these are people who've built careers around recognizing what the readership that they're choosing stories for, what what they will recognize and and, and what works. And that means not sticking to (coughs) a hidebound definition, because obviously the good news stuff was Gardner's argument that space opera is not dead. It's still alive. It's just transformed prefacing my comments by saying Ellen Datlow is around and can address the questions for herself. So I don't know exactly what she thinks uh, at all. She has her own views of horror and other things. So I would absolutely set that to one side. Yeah. For Gardner, who's not here to clarify, we can only look at what he did. Exactly. And my feeling with Gardner, who I feel a lot of affinity for, you know, I really do as an editor and as a reader, I read the things he was putting out. I think is unless he was, in a situation where he was either having a conversation for pleasure or he was forced by circumstance, he didn't want to define anything. Exactly. I think that's right. I, th- I think that when he was editing for Asimov's, he had a very broad, loose definition of what science fiction is and maintained that because that is a very healthy way of looking at something like editing a magazine like like Asimov's. You know, you want it to be a, you know, like, Lowercase c, low, lowercase sorry, lowercase s, mm. like lowercase s science fiction, rather than some particular thing that you're looking to define. And it's only when he came to books like the New Space Opera, where you're looking to cleave off a little part of the field or a large part of the field in this case, and talk about it, that you need to worry about definition. You don't need to worry about different definitions in uh, spaces like Asimov's or Analog or FNSF. There are things you need to know about your audience. Uh, and, and, and their taste and what they'll respond to. And you do need to keep within some kind of broad lines. You know, my own take sort of following on was keeping within quite broad lines wherever you could. When I, I mean, one of, one of the reasons I deliberately put, you know, for a long time edited the best science fiction of fantasy of the year mm-hmm. was that I deliberately didn't want to define anything. I wanted there to be loose, fuzzy sets of things because that's where I think things get to their most interesting but I also think it's interesting occasionally to pull back and go, but there's still this. What is this? And how do we connect today to what came before? And how have these things changed and not changed? And that's what this is about. How have they not changed? How are they the same? What is it that makes um, the Unstoppable trilogy a space opera mm. in the way that, um, you know, um, Star Smashers of the Galaxy was a space opera? And what makes it a different kind of space opera because it comes out now today well, i think one of the things about space opera that uh, is reflected both in harry harrison and charlie jane andrews is that you can basically make fun of it and celebrate it at the same time um and yeah. and, and the, the the fun elements of it uh are are, are part of the, the ridiculous elements of it are part of the appeal but i, I go back to what you were saying about gardner because i think it's interesting about his work as an anthologist and many other anthologists is when you look at 
uh, books about science fiction by editors, by people who have been editors and publishers, and you get into issues of defining science fiction or issues of, most of them touch upon space opera. I'm thinking of books by, uh, by Wolheim, by Frederick Pohl, by Brian Aldiss, by David Hartwell. If you look at them closely, and this is going to sound vaguely academic, but that's okay for five minutes, you'll find that the sections about specific kinds of science fiction essentially read as defenses of their own editorial practices. In other words, what they're doing is not explaining what science fiction is, but explaining what they tried to make science fiction be uh, in their very influential and important historical parts of it. Now, the, the downside to that, of course, is that uh, this repressed a whole set of voices in science fiction for generations, which are now coming to the fore, which is a good, healthy thing. Mm -hmm. um, but it also meant that... Uh, there was a kind of conservative uh, pushback among mm -hmm. these editors that may have kept space opera from evolving into something else until it began to change, until it began to uh, evolve into what you're calling the new space opera, what Gardner called the good news stuff, what, um, what people like, uh, I don't know, the, uh, the Mike Harrison readers, for example, would, would see all the elements in space opera of his stuff and yet, it, and yet it didn't read like space opera. Everything was there, but what kept it from being space opera? Well, it was irony. It was uh, kind of existential angst, uh -huh. perhaps, all sorts of things. But my question, it raises this question. It raises the question that um, we touched upon earlier. You can have all the elements of a space opera, and it still doesn't end up reading like a space opera. It doesn't give you the fill-up. It doesn't give you the satisfaction at the end which may be a whiplash ending. A lot of space operas ended with what Clute uh, called whiplash endings. The real story is coming in the next installment or the next volume or whatever. Um, this is a very rough kind of a comment in, in here, but it feels like the resolution of a space opera is emotional more than it is intellectual. Uh, absolutely. I totally agree with that. And I think that, again, has to do with the ap operatic aspect of it. Um, it's like, I read a book, right? I do that. I read a book just recently, which is coming out in April. Mm -hmm. It's a space opera. I think it's a space opera, and I recommend this book. Now, it's the story of a teenage, genetically engineered super soldier who's working, who's living in a contained military training environment, who's part of a group that's trying to overthrow aliens that destroyed Earth. Mm -hmm. Now, that if, when you tell this story or synopsize this story or its background that way, I reckon it sounds like it could have been written in 1940. Sounds very much like it. But what makes it not, I mean, it, it moves forward. It picks up, it, it's, its core setting is could classically be a very Ender's Gamey kind of setting, also mm. a space opera of its time in many ways. But it's very much about, I guess, queerness and about found family and all these sort of things. So the actual emotional layers around it are quite, are different from the ones that they were playing on in 1940. In 1940, it would, would be about the resolution of the issue about the destruction of earth. Yeah. In many ways, this book is about the resolution of that's there, but it's more like that's the background issue where the foreground issue is about how you deal with the mental trauma, this, characters experienced and how they deal with their own found feelings as they come out of this abusive kind of environment they've been in where they're being trained ever since they're a child to avenge the death of earth right mm -hmm. now this book which is uh, some desperate glory 
by Emily Tesh. Mm-hmm. It's a book I, I ended up enjoying very, very much. And I did find myself as I read it, uh, kind of going, because it's, it's described on its cover copy, it's, it's, it's a thrillingly told queer space opera. I'm going, is this a queer space opera at all? What does that mean? What does it mean to be a queer space opera? What does it mean? Opera? I don't know what it means. I mean, I think for the most part, what it simply means is a space opera where the characters happen to be queer. That's fine. Well, I mean, I it's, think- it's, it's, it's a marketing term. I mean, you'll see, as you go back to Charlie yeah. Jane Andrews series, there are queer characters in them. There are uh, neuroatypical characters in them. Yeah, yeah. There are non-binary characters in them. Uh, I, th- I think in marketing terms, <clears throat> queer has a much broader remit than, well, than it used to. I, I will say I began to stop queering it. And it wasn't queering it in terms of legitimacy, but it's like, I'm just trying to understand what, what I'm dealing with when I read mm-hmm. the book. Um, and what happens, I think, is that the narrative, the author with what they're looking at, begins to, as it unfolds, particularly after the halfway point of the book, I think, to mm-hmm. really try to unpack issues that relate to queerness yeah, and I'm relate sure. to that kind of thing, and that which is not necessarily part of any kind of traditional space opera narrative, but works extremely well in what is a strong debut novel. I think one of the things that has to happen with whatever we're calling the new, new space opera or are we calling it the new new space opera, by the way? Are we calling no, it no. Do you, do you know where that idea comes from? I'll tell you where that idea comes from. When my daughter Sophie was four years old, three mm-hmm. years old, she was given a little plush toy, a little plush doll uh-huh. called Pinky, she called her. And Pinky got kind of mucked up and everything else, and we bought her a new one. And she didn't want to get rid of the old one, but to distinguish between Pinky and the new one, it was new Pinky. And the year after, we gave her another one. And she, at one point, she had five of them. And they literally were. And she knew exactly which one was. Which one was Pinky, New Pinky, New New Pinky, New 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 Pinky, and New 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 Pinky. So it's really just me being ridiculous, evolving the question of space opera and where we are as to whether or not it's New 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 Space Opera we're dealing with. Right. And I, th- I think we're dealing with, I mean, we're dealing with space opera. But we're dealing with space opera where I think the two primary things that have changed are the point, the, the protagonists who are involved and what that means for the story, yep. and how we are considering and analyzing the underpinnings of the world, the settings of the space opera itself. I think what made the new space opera the new space opera was that first real strong look at analyzing the imp- the political underpinnings of those worlds. Right. And I think that's even more intensely happening now. And then it's added in by we're now dealing with a lot of LGBT LGBTQ narratives, a lot of BIPOC narratives, whatever else, and that's happening more and more and more. And that's so what's arguing, changing. Okay, yeah. let, let, let me oversimplify and mansplain and do all this stuff at once. Uh, Ooh, I love that. Uh, yeah, I love okay. mansplaining so, so more. Essentially arguing that the redefined space opera that you and Gardner were working with dealt more with institutions than political issues. In other words, space opera that repres- that, that recognized the problems of colonialism, a uh, space opera that recognized uh, the, uh, the the imperial tendency of the classic myth of expanding outward. I mean, the kind of thing that leads eventually to uh, the point of view in many space operas being not that of the conquering uh, uh, central government, not that of the foundation, let's say, but that of the resistance, the alliance, the uh, yes. the Princess Leia's and, and, and the Han Solo's. So, so that you could you could kind of keep the political structure of the space opera, by of the opera, by simply shifting your attention to those who are the oppressed rather than the oppressors. You could very much make an argument that in early space operas, the heroes were the imperialists. They were the ones that were going to, you know, possibly 
take over the universe, or at the very least, save the universe from an alien horde, which had all kinds of racist overtones. Let's face it, there's a lot of ugly yeah. stuff in that kind of space opera. But now, sure, you're sure. Saying, now you're saying that the new new space opera or the post-new space opera or space opera Rita Vivis or whatever you want to call it is expanding the range of characters who can act in this world. In other words, it's not entirely about politics anymore. It's about partly about identity, but I don't want to use the term identity politics, which I hate. The fact that many people excluded from generations of space opera have their own issues to bring to it, and those issues can be combined with the issues of the classic space opera. So if you're dealing with what it means to be uh, a, a non-binary, neuroatypical teenager who suddenly finds yourself part of the galactic resistance, um, you're dealing with personal issues as well as the role you're playing in the space opera. I agree up to a point. The point where I would quibble, and it is quibbling, is that act of change, uh, broadening perspective is political. Of course it is. Yes, it is. I agree. I mean, you are less overtly, well, less clearly talking about political systems, about empire and whatever else, but you are nonetheless, you know, doing something political when you start talking about things from the, the, maybe the least privileged, the most marginalized, whatever else in those, those stories. And that makes it interesting. And like with some desperate glory, I mean, you're talking about, you know, a, a teenager who is queer, who has virtually no power in this situation, really, and then transforms that. So it really does fall mm-hmm. into that kind of space. And I don't doubt there will be others during the year. And of course, a book, something like that, as a 2023 space opera, I'm sure reads very differently from, say, the final volume of Adrian Tchaikovsky's space opera trilogy or, um, you know, whatever other space operas come out in the year that, you know, because those older style space operas, you know, continue to be a thing as, as we go, as go forward as well. Does that make sense? That makes sense. It, it, it does. But you're, now you're making a distinction between older style space operas, by which I mean, I assume you mean the plots essentially resemble the plots of classic space opera. Yeah. I mean, we're making a distinction between plot and character. And I think you could make an argument uh, that the last 20 years in science fiction in general, has been to expand the range of characters. In other words, every subgenre of science fiction gets reinvented when you start including all the characters, not only characters in terms of gender and sexual identity or race or nationality or, uh, or, or neurological uh, conditions, all of those characters historically excluded or at, at, the, very, at the very least ex- included minimally now redefine everything. It's, it's to some extent, it's what I've said many times before about um, uh, a, a novel. Um, oh, let's take the, the River Solomon uh, novel, not, not the Sorrowing, but the one before that from Blanking on the River. Okay. Well, the one which looks a lot like a Generation Starship thing. It looks a lot yeah, like no, High Lines. Um, I'm just totally blanking on it. You'll look it up for me. Um, <laughs> but in, a, in, a, in effect, it redefines that entire genre of finding out what the real uh, purpose of your mission is Yes, by putting it in the eyes of, of outcasts. People are outcasts to begin uh, with the story. You're talking about an unkindness of ghosts. An unkindness of ghosts, absolutely. Uh, which I thought was a terrific way of completely redefining a classic science fiction theme. We're on a spaceship and nobody really knows where it's going uh, and we're being repressed and we're not being told the truth about it the plot essentially of Heinlein's universe 
becomes a different story entirely with different characters who Heinlein, I don't know what Heinlein would have made of neuroatypical characters. He wrote plenty of them without being aware of it, I think. I don't know. I, I'm not, I don't know that I need to check back with the guy who was talking about nipples going spung. Well, there's that too. <laughs> you know, not to be, not to re- reduce it to the ridiculous. Well, maybe to reduce it to the ridiculous. But we should probably wind this up because amongst other things, I'm mildly concerned that we've just rehashed a conversation we had in October. We did, uh, but where we were talking about space. But, 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 Hopefully but, this is different. It's it's different. It's it's different because because whatever we said in October, it was wrong, and now we've rethought things. This is the proper conversation. Well, it's also um, part of the evolution of this because you know I have to hand this book in quite quickly. I've got to do it uh-huh. the next couple of months, so um, it's going to be it's on my mind. And the one thing we do is we tend to sort of c- circle around the things that are on our minds very, very much at that at, the, at this time. Um, um, so I don't know. We'll see where we go. I have to start contracting story or, or signing up reprints for this. So we'll see. Oh, you're going to do some uh, reprints as well. That'll be interesting. No, it's all reprint. Oh, it's all reprint. Okay. That's how come I can do the book in like three months. Ah. Otherwise, I'm, otherwise it would take me like ages. I was never going to get a whole book of new stories written in like three months. No, no. I wonder what Nate Tidhar would do for a space hop. He's my benchmark. I think he's my favorite modern writer now. I'm sorry. I didn't hear the name. I said, I, I wonder what Lavi Tidhar would do with well, a, the thing, an actual uh, space uh, opera. I'm glad you mentioned space. that because Lavi Tidhar has a space opera in him. His last, oh, yeah. all of his, his Neom, his uh, Central Station stories, they're all set in a world that there's a space opera going on outside of this world. And some of his short stories have been there. So, yeah, I think that there's no doubt that Levi Tidar has a space opera to be, to be yeah. set in. And I think also the other, the other question which uh, kind of undergirds this is, you know, the classic American space opera of the, of, of the 30s, now you have... Nigerian space opera, you have Israeli space opera, you have uh, the, the big new TV series, which may or may not be a disaster, of the three-body three problem, which certainly has space opera elements in that trilogy. Um, sure. So, so yeah, uh, not only when you're dealing with different sets of characters are you changing space opera, but when you're dealing with different political backstories are you changing space opera. Yeah. Well, to segue out of this with a couple of quick news points, okay. since you mentioned uh, Sishin Lu and the three-body problem, one notes that the Worldcon in Chengdu has changed both its date and its venue. It's now happening just a week before World Fantasy Convention in October, and it's at a different um, premises in Chengdu, mm-hmm. uh, which hopefully they will finish building before the convention starts. I will also note, and this is important that you have until January the 31st to resolve your convention membership issues if you wish to be able to nominate and vote for the Hugo Awards, which I have just done. I just paid for a membership just to be sure I could Mm -hmm. vote. And I look forward to nominating and voting as energetically as I possibly can, particularly since we've just concluded our recommended reading things and we'll be talking to Liza Tromby about it on when that comes out from Locus. And I would also send out our goodwill and good wishes to Paul DeFilippo, who was recently in a, a pedestrian accident, I think, where he was hit by a car. Was hit by a car and apparently uh, badly bruised, but with no broken bones and apparently no head injury. Which is a huge relief. So I you know, uh, you know, want to expressly say and to him and I guess to everybody else going through difficult times, we hope that you recover you know, quickly and well. Same here. And, and I guess then that's and the We podcast. should also, just as a, as, as, a, as, as a footnote to that, 
because we don't do a lot of this because it happens far too often. But uh, but an old friend of mine and a brilliant science fiction writer, Susie McKee Charnas, passed away a yes. week, week or two ago, I guess. A couple of weeks ago. And, and, and I, a real I, loss. It was a huge loss in all kinds of ways. Her last, the last book of hers I read was a memoir about her father, which was just wonderful. But I've had, I remember having a number of conversations with her where she had this mixed feeling of having become hugely successful uh, because of her vampire tapestry and her vampire stories and that sort of. But who had written one of the foundational works of feminist science fiction, the four volumes of the Holdfast Chronicles, uh, and they, they have not been forgotten certainly, but. She was always a little puzzled as to why somebody who'd written some very charged and emotional and angry uh, science fiction novels instead became known as a vampire writer. I think that frustrated her a little bit during the last few years. The vampire stories are terrific. I don't want to say they're not. But the Holdfast Chronicles are an important part of science fiction history. It does happen. I mean, you could argue that something similar happened to... Lucia Shepard, if less dramatically. I mean, he's, he was yeah. more better known for The Golden, which was his vampire novel, and Garul, his dragon stories, than for the other work in most ways. So It's true. But I mean, the thing that I re recall is I did get to spend a little bit of time with uh, Susie Charnas once, and she was funny. You know, what, what you'd hope somebody would be funny and smart oh, yeah. and a little bit irascible. Um, really, really interesting kind of person. And the books, the books, the Holdfast Chronicles are just remarkable books. And I would strongly recommend them to anyone who's not encountered them. As would I. And, and it's, I I'm just, I'm sorry that, you know, sort of it was very sad to see that Susie had, had, had passed away. Uh, something happens far too often, as you say. I mean, I noticed that David Crosby died the other day where right. you know, I think anyone who, rec who recorded music in the sixties will, will be leaving us if they, if they haven't yet sometime in the next five or 10 years. And yes, sad things. But anyway, that was cheery. We we're talking about space opera. Then got all sad. Thanks Gary. Well, it's okay. Why well, we were okay. David Crosby is dead, but the earworms are still there. The minute I read the obit, I thought, okay, the next week, um, that's all I was listening. Where Crosby stills and Nash. There you go. Which means it lives on. Okay. Well, on that cheery note. Okay. Until the next time, when we'll be more cheerful than this time, I guess, unless something else awful happens. This has been the Good <laughs> Street Podcast. Uh, temporarily fun. Whatever. <laughs>